Open your Bible to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. As you're opening your Bibles, I know we have visitors who come in and uh, through our church and we have people who watch some sermons online. So it's important to kind of reintroduce sometimes why we do what we do and what we actually are doing. Uh, when I was first introduced to expository preaching, I was listening to a man preach. It was John MacArthur. And I remember listening to a sermon of his. And this is going to be a little bit revealing as to the kind of church that I was in at the time. And I remember him preaching and at the end of that sermon thinking, what a great idea. Like during a sermon time to explain Bible verses, what a novel thought, what a great idea. And I can only tell you that that had a dramatic impact on my own life and thinking and ministry. And what we do is we're going through the book of Romans expository preaching, verse by verse. The reason we're preaching and talking about the verses that we are this morning is because they follow the verses that we looked at last week. And guess what we're going to do next week? The next section of verses. So it's important just to remember what we're doing and why we're doing it. Sometimes I look at the passage that the Lord lays out before us and I think, I probably would not have ever chosen that passage in isolation to preach on. But then after digging in, you see exactly why the Lord put it in the precious book so that we would flow through and understand. Such is the case this morning. Romans chapter 7. Follow along as I put in our minds the verses we'll be looking at this morning. Verses 7 through 13. Romans chapter 7. Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law... He's talking about the Mosaic law, the Old Testament... Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me every kind. Every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, not the law, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. You say, what are those verses about? It's not as complicated as it might seem at first reading. Let me put a little context historically uh, before us, before we dive into this text. Not long after the birth of the church, there was a major theological crisis. The church was trying to figure itself out theologically. Who she was, what she believed, her attachment to Judaism, her Understanding of the Jewish Messiah now being at the head of a church that has Jews and Gentiles. Now to understand this crisis, you have to kind of go back and put yourself in their sandals, as it were. 
the dilemma experienced by both Jews and Gentiles who heard the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. Now think about it for a moment. Think about their predicament. If you were a Jew, you were instantly faced with a few questions. The Messiah, Jesus, was entirely different than your expectations. Rome was still in charge. All the promises that the Messiah would rule the earth and make all wrongs righted and the Jews would be at the center of the ruling entity of the Messiah hadn't happened. Keyword, yet. And so they were struggling. What what are we doing with this? We have all this Old Testament law and we have Jesus who's the Messiah who matches so much we can't deny that he's the Messiah. And yet everything that is said in the Old Testament hasn't come to fruition yet through this Messiah. We find out in the rest of the New Testament that it it will one day. And so they were scratching their heads. Who are we? Are we Christians or are we Jews? What do you do with the Old Testament? And then if you're a Gentile in this first generation, that's also presented with some unique challenges. If you were a Gentile, you'd be asking yourself, okay... The Old Testament predicted this Messiah named Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and the Jewish way of expectation for the one who would take care of sin. So, in becoming a Christian, am I not, in some sense, becoming a Jew, right? So the Jews were asking, hang on, am, am I, have I stopped becoming Jewish by becoming a Christian? And the, the Gentiles were saying, am I becoming Jewish by becoming a Christian? Turn back over for a moment in, to, in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. And I want to lay some historical groundwork because this is imperative to understand what Paul is referencing here in Romans chapter 7. Acts chapter 15, you have the first council of the church, the Jerusalem council. This is where these ideas came into collision with one another. Now, a little background. Paul kept wanting to go to, he he wanted desperately to go to preach the gospel to the Jews. And God kept shipping him off to Gentile cities. Even when he sent him to the Gentile cities, you know what he did first? He went to the synagogue. Anyway, God said, go preach to the Gentiles. Peter, on the other hand, was called to preach to the Jews. Now, if you look at the history of the book of Acts, Peter was a hard case. We'll look at Peter in just a second. Because Peter was so Jewish that he was Jewish-Jewish. And so God gave him a special vision in Acts chapter 10. Remember, he said there's clean and unclean animals. He said, Peter, I want to... He gave him this vision. He dropped a sheet, a, 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 a supernatural PowerPoint presentation in front of him. And there were all these unclean animals forbidden to eat in the Old Testament. And you remember what he said? Rise, kill, eat. Go have a BLT. Everything that was forbidden, it's just food. It's just nutrition. What that was set aside to do in the Old Testament was to mark the people of God, the Jews, as separate from their surrounding nations by everything. The way they lived, the way they dressed, even the way they ate. And God says, that's, that's not the way that the gospel is going to operate. So there's no more divisions. And he made Peter eat unclean animals. So Peter should have known, okay, this is something new. Christianity, the Messiah, is not just coming to minister to the Jewish people. 
even though he was their Messiah. Now listen, if you go back and read the Old Testament, read Psalm 117. God's intention was that all the nations come to him. It was never just to be exclusively Jewish. The Jews were supposed to be proselytizers. Remember that word? They were supposed to be evangelists for the God of Israel. Peter was called to preach to the Jews and God keeps putting Gentiles in his way. Paul was called to preach to the Gentiles and he kept putting Jews in his own way. Very interesting. But you have a problem in in Acts. You have a challenging problem. These saved Jews and these saved Gentiles were beginning to wonder, okay, what do we do with the Old Testament? Things like dietary laws, especially something like circumcision. Just follow along in verse 1. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised, stop right there. Brethren Christians, they're telling Christians that unless you are circumcised in the way of Moses, the custom of Moses, the Old Testament prescription, you cannot be saved. Do you hear what they're saying? Since the Messiah is Jewish and he's the Jews' Messiah and you as a Gentile want to worship the Messiah, that's okay. You just got to become Jewish. Uh Uh-oh. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Paul, we appreciate what you're saying. Barnabas, you have some great insights, but we're going to bump you to your boss. We want to go back to the mother church. Go back to Jerusalem. Sort this thing out for us. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And we're bringing great joy to all the brethren. They kept saying, we're preaching the Jewish Messiah. And these Gentile people keep saying, I want to be saved from my sin too. And they were having joy over this. Unbelievable. God is a, an indiscriminate God in his offer to salvation, of salvation. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported all that God had done with them. There's a lot between verses 4 and 5. What what were they reporting? God is saving non-Jews through the Jewish Messiah. It's quite a report. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed... Isn't that interesting how they're identified? They're Pharisees who were Christians. They kept their Pharisee standing. Stood up saying... It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Do you hear what they're saying? If you're going to be a Christian, the Christ being Jewish, then to be a Christian, you must become what? Jewish. Do you see what they're saying? The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. That's code words for they had a great debate. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He told them all about the vision he had. Clean and unclean. It's it's wiped away. There's one God, one way to heaven. It's through Jesus, not through the Mosaic law. 
And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them, Gentiles, the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And just if you underline things in your Bible, wow, this is powerful. And he, that's God, God made no distinction between us and them. How, Paul? Cleansing their hearts by, not the law, but by faith. Doesn't that sound like the first five chapters of the book of Romans? Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. We'll come back to that. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the same way as they also are. And all the people kept silent. They were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. What's most insightful is Paul provides correction to people saying you have to be Jewish to be Christian, is all found there in verse 10. Because this is going to be what Paul is going to explicate and explain and exposit in Romans 7. Why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples, these new Christians, these new Gentile converts. Why are you putting the law on them? Now listen to what he says. A yoke, a burden which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Do you hear what he's saying there? You're trying to tell everybody, go back under the law because that's the way you can truly be right with God. Do you not understand that for ages and ages we tried that and it didn't work? No one has ever been saved by the law. However, saved people seek to obey the law. Now hold your, that in your mind and turn over to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians, the second chapter. The word of God is eternal. The word of God will never go return void. The word of God will, be, will outlive this world and space. And forever and ever, Peter is canonized in Scripture in a less than flattering way spiritually. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says, Seeing that I have been entrusted in the middle of the verse with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that's the Gentiles, same issue, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. Now, now we find out that God had a major mission for Paul to preach to the Gentiles and for Peter to preach to the Jews. For he had effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised. Effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. Pretty clear. And recognizing the grace that had been given to us, to me, James and Cephas and Paul, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and that they to to the circumcised. They asked... To remember the poor, the very things which I was eager to do. So he just sets it up. Okay, here's what God did. God said, Paul, go to the Gentiles. Peter, go to the Jews. Explain the gospel. 
Then there's a verse 11, but. However, but when Cephas, that's Peter. It's interesting that he goes back and gets his, uh, uh, his uh, older name. Came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he, Peter, stood condemned. Stop the presses. Peter stood condemned. This is not salvifically. This is theologically. He's going to explain. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. You see what's happening here? Peter's getting along with these uh, Gentile converts, having meals with them, not eating. Uh, he's eating unclean meals and food with them, and everything's great. Then James comes. He says, uh-oh, I don't want to be in trouble with those who are Jewish. So he withdraws from them and gives a social stiff arm to these Gentile converts. The rest of the Jews joined him in, look at what Paul calls this, hypocrisy. With the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that's why Peter stood condemned. He wasn't straightforward. I said to Cephas, in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature, not sinners uh, from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. We're going to get there in chapter 7. Man is not justified by the works of the law. That's chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5 in Romans. But through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be, can be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been also found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. Are we throwing out all the moral regulations? Then he talks, goes on to climax in being crucified with Christ. Through the law, I died to the law, verse 19, so that I might live to God. What's going on here? Do you see the extreme theological dilemma that this first early church had? Do do you feel it? Do you sense it? (laughs) Peter himself ends up preaching justification by works through the law. And Paul has to correct him. Now read the last thing that we have recorded by Peter in 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gets it in the end. He's publicly rebuked. You have to keep this tension in your mind when you parachute into Romans chapter 7. That's what's at stake. That's the tension This all left the early church, even in Rome, with two extreme positions. Some people said, ha, we don't live uh, uh, under the law. We're free from the law. And that led to licentiousness. They just didn't have any moral regulations. We don't have to do anything. We're saved by grace. And Paul corrects that. But he also corrects those who say, no, we have to live under the law as believers. Do you feel those two extremes? 
you understand the two extremes that Paul had to navigate through with two groups of people in the same church, sitting by each other in the same pew? Well, correcting both of these errors has been Paul's aim from chapter 2 of Romans all the way through our current passage. And the passage before us, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and following, brings us into a crystal clear perspective of understanding, here it is, the believer and the law. You want to say it another way? The believer in the Old Testament. What do you do with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those regulations? What do you do with the histories? What do you do with the wisdom literature? What do you do with the prophets? Is that for them? I mean, how do we interpret that? Does it have anything to do with us? Paul's overarching point is that the law is not and has not ever been able to provide anyone with salvation. But having said that, he says the law has indescribable value. What I want to do in the time this morning remaining is to describe this with you. Paul gives us three valuable attributes of the law. And this makes sense to us when we understand there are some people saying, you got to live under the law. Some people say, throw the law away. He says, no, no. The, the law has value. It has intrinsic value that you must understand. The first is in verses 7 and 8. The law reveals the reality of sin. It reveals the reality of sin. We began looking at this in the first six verses last week. He now climaxes that argument here in verses 7 and 8. The law reveals the reality of sin. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Now to understand this fully, if you're back in Romans, you've got to go back up to chapter 7 verse 4 and see the running start that he's correcting. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Jesus on the cross died to the law as a regulating principle to please God. No one can ever do that. But did he just wipe it away? No. He himself obeyed in every category of the law so that he could give us that obedience, that righteousness, that imputation we've studied for chapter after chapter. And he took away the curse of the law through his death so that you might be joined to one another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. There, we we learned that last week. He's going to come back to that this week. Sinful passions, sinful desires are provoked. They're aroused by prohibitions, by the law. They are working the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law. What a great idea. What a great concept. What a blessing of the cross. We've been released from the law having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So you see these people going, oh, great, we're dead to the law. No more law, no more regulations, no more prohibitions. Ah, that's so relieving. And Paul says, actually, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law missing the mark? Is the law a bad thing? Strongest Greek language you can use. May it never under any circumstance be. Before you throw God's regulating principles in the Old Testament out and just say that was for them and now we have the New Testament for us. Remember, the law is not sin. The law is not done with. 
may it never be. On the contrary, then he begins to give the value of the law, that it showed him the reality of sin. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. This is an interesting insight. Uh, some people have said this is autobiographical for Paul. I tend to lean this way. He, he says, well, I, I obviously have a, an issue in my heart about coveting. So, if I have an issue in my heart about coveting, how did I know that coveting was wrong? By looking at the law. So we find out a little bit about Paul's besetting sin or one of his besetting sins is he coveted. You say, what, what is coveting? Well, it's forbidden in the 10th commandment in Exodus 20, verse 17, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 21. It's the 10th commandment, but it's a unique commandment. It's the most internal of all 10 commandments. How can you tell if someone is coveting? Well, it could manifest itself in stealing. It could manifest itself in jealousy. The other, other, even murder. Even adultery, coveting someone's wife. But this goes to the heart. Paul says, my heart was unearthed and revealed by the law that says, do not covet. Do not want something that you cannot rightfully have. That's what coveting means. To want to achieve something, get something that's not rightfully yours. It's a prohibition. And the prohibition inherent in the law revealed the sin that was in Paul's heart. He said, I never had this kind of idea, this, this, this thing that I wanted, that I wanted other things that people had, other people that they had influence over, you fill in the blank. But I didn't know that was wrong until I read in the 10th commandment that it was really wrong, according to God. My conscience might have been pricked. You know, remember uh, Romans 2 says that the law is written on the heart. But he says it wasn't clear until God said, don't do that. As we said last week, looking back at what uh, Paul said in uh, verse 5, Prohibitions can actually arouse your curiosity to sin. We said it last week. Get a, get a, go downstairs and serve in Sunday school. Go to the four-year-olds. Get them in a room with a closet and tell them, okay, we're going to have lots of fun today. We're going to do all sorts of fun things. But under no circumstances can you look in the closet. What's every four-year-old going to do? Go to the closet. That's what Paul is saying. When I find out what God's regulations are and his prohibitions are, my sinful curiosity makes me want to know what's so bad about that. You see this all the way back in the garden, don't you? You could eat from any tree you want except that one, the next chapter, where they show up. That one. Were there not a lot of other good trees in the garden? Why there? Paul says, come on. It's not the law that does this. It's our sinful flesh that says, I can't, hang on, you, I can't do that. It's a problem with authority. It's a problem with curiosity. It's a problem with desire. It's a problem with lust. And then he gives us a little, even stronger statement in verse nine, verse eight rather. But sin, not the law, sin, taking opportunity through the commandment. Wow, do we find out something about our own sanctification? Something about how God's law works. Once your flesh, look, the devil can be thrown into hell right now and it wouldn't affect this. Once your flesh knows that there's a prohibition 
your flesh begins to be attracted to that thing prohibited. It takes opportunity through the commandment. And Paul says, it actually produced coveting of every kind in me. I started coveting in all sorts of ways. What he's not saying is I started coveting. It's the law showed me how much coveting was already going on. It shined a spotlight onto where my heart actually was. For apart from the law, sin is dead. What he's saying is you don't really understand how alive sin is until you're told what it is and that you shouldn't do it. Prohibitions tend to arouse those things prohibited. Now, you can't misunderstand what Paul is saying here. He is not saying that the law produced in him a desire to sin. Well, I didn't have any desire to covet. Then the law came. Then I started coveting. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that it showed me all the areas of my heart that were coveting. The prohibition provided a way for his sin to be identified and proven as a reality already present in his heart. So, Paul returns to a question he's already raised. Namely, is the law then sinful because it makes sin abound? If the law keeps showing me my sin, isn't that bad? Wouldn't I have been better off had I not known anything about my sin? Remember chapter 5, verse 20? Flip back over two pages. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. The law came to show us how sinful we were, are. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. It's not a condemning sickle that God wields in our life to cut us down. It actually reveals how deep the grace of God matches the depth of our sin. In other words, since the law exposes sin, does that make it sinful? No, on the contrary. What a grace that God shows us when we're off. Number two, a second valuable attribute of the law is this. It discloses the results of sin. It discloses the results of sin, verses 9 to 11. Now it gets autobiographical. He says, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. What is he saying there? It's not as complicated as it sounds. Sin was always there, but when he became aware of the standard, he felt utterly condemned to death. That's all he's saying. Verse 10, and this commandment, which was the result to result in life, God intended to give us all these prohibitions so we would please him and we would have life. That is, through Christ and the gospel, it results in life. Why? Because Jesus obeyed the law perfectly. And as we studied in Romans 3 and 4, and gives us that obedience, gives us that righteousness through faith, puts his obedience, his righteousness in our spiritual account. The commandment, which was to result in life, Spiritual life through Christ proved to result in death for me, both spiritually and ultimately physically. Paul says, and he'll say in Galatians, uh, the law was supposed to show me how much I needed Christ. But some people stay in the law and say, I'm going to try to obey my way to, to please God. He says, no, that just produces death. For sin, now he comes back to the same phraseology he's already given us. Verse 8, taking an opportunity through the commandment. Do you underline words in your Bible? What does sin do? What's the word? 
It deceived me. It lied to me. And through it killed me. In other words, he was undone by his inability to keep the law. Even though the effort to keep the law lied to him and said, you, you can do enough to please God. You can obey enough. You can not eat unclean foods enough. You name the law. If you do that enough, it's within your power to obey or disobey. So you do that enough, God's going to be pleased with you. It's the same principle today. It's enough theology. If I do enough, God will finally say, you're in. Sin deceived me, Paul says. It deceived me and through it killed me. Sin is deceptive. Sin will lie to you. Sin will promise you things it cannot deliver. It will tell you that through obedience you will be kept from things that you will definitely experience. You can't be happy in God if you, if you don't sin. Not, not, not at all. Sin lies and says you won't be happy unless you sin. And I would ask any honest Christian... Does sin bring you the happiness that it promised? Now be careful. That lasts. Sin is fun. Sin is good in the moment. Sin is satisfying for a moment. But it never, ever, ever brings lasting satisfaction. I was uh, in a youth conference one time and I heard a guy preaching and he said... uh, he was really getting excited and he said, sin will never make you happy. And I thought about that and I thought, hang on a second. I've been really happy for moments when I've sinned. And I began processing that. What he was trying to say is it won't last. It won't last. And Paul is saying, sin deceived me. Sin actually used, in this context, sin lied to me and said, Paul, if you'll be good enough, God will be impressed enough to make you in heaven enough. And it didn't. The law is valuable and it discloses this to us. It teaches us. It says, here's the result of sin. You won't be happy long term. It'll lie to you. The result of sin is death. It's not a good ending. If that's not enough, here's another valuable attribute, a third valuable attribute of the work of the law. Number three, it exposes the sinfulness of sin. This is a great... um, Title of John Owen's book on sin, The Sinfulness of Sin. So then, he keeps having these these little conclusions, these little equal signs in his argument. So then, the law is separate, it's holy. It it makes you uh, uh, like God in holiness. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. What he's saying is, remember, sin is not, the law is not sin, then what is it? It is actually holy, righteous, and good. You say, how does that work? Now, to, do, to understand this, you need to step back a little bit. And we need to look at the word Torah. Torah is the word for law in the Old Testament. It's a Hebrew word. 
you can't think of Torah in the same way that you think of speeding laws or, or stealing laws. There's some overlap, but it's much deeper than that. Torah actually meant to instruct. So that Paul in 1 Timothy 5 says, The law is good. Excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 to 11. says, The law, the Torah, the teaching is good if one uses it lawfully. Now break that down. The law is good if one uses it lawfully. What he's saying is the instruction is good if one uses it instructively to instruct us on the right thing. Meaning, the law was never intended to instruct us on how to get saved. The law was always intended on principles by which we are made holy and sanctified. That's why it's a holy law. That's why it's a good law. That's why it's a righteous law. It gives us instructions. Now, just a little aside from that. So what do you do with the Old Testament? What do you do with Genesis through Revelation? The law. First of all, isn't it interesting that Genesis is in the law and there are no laws in Genesis? Tells you that there's more in the law than do this, don't do that. It's principles telling us about God, his standards, and even narratives about those who please God and those who displease God by appealing to or violating his standards. What do you do with the Old Testament as a as a Christian? It's really simple. It's not principles that you look at and say, I have to do this to earn God's view and favor so that God will save me. But it does outline principles by which we can become sanctified and holy. Not always an application. We don't still have the Jewish dietary laws. Those were done away with in Acts chapter 10. But the dietary laws do tell us something. God intends that we live fundamentally observable, different lifestyles than unbelievers. That's a principle that can you, you can take away. They're sanctifying laws, not justifying laws. And know this, they were never justifying laws. No Old Testament believer was ever saved by obeying the law enough. They were only saved by believing God's means of grace through faith. Therefore, verse 13... Did that which is good become a curse of death for me? Did the law actually betray me? Did it bait and switch me? May it never be. Rather, it wasn't the law that was the problem. It was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. That which is good is the law. The law is good. It shows me my sin. Sin is bad because it's in my heart. So that through the commandment, through the law, sin would become utterly sinful. We would see the sinfulness of sin. Problem is not the law. The problem is the sin that it exposes. Let Let me give you an illustration. Let's say that you go to the doctor. And the doctor informs you that you have a tumor. This tumor is... Is suspicious, it may be malignant, and he wants to go in and take this out. It needs immediate surgery, immediate attention. Are you going to go home and tell your family, you are not going to believe how awful my doctor is? He told me there was something bad in me. He didn't affirm me, he didn't pat me on the head. He didn't tell me that I was in good shape. He told me something wrong with me. Is the problem the doctor? No, the problem is the tumor. 
In that illustration, he's saying the problem is not the law, which tells us what's wrong with us. The problem is what's wrong with us, which is sin. Ken Boa summarizes this paragraph very well. Listen, I should have put this up for you, but just listen carefully. God uses a holy thing, the law, to reveal an evil thing, sin, so that a necessary thing, death, might result in the most important thing, life. Isn't that good thinking? It's really carefully thought through that whole chapter. Let me read it again. God uses a holy thing, law, to reveal an evil thing, sin, so that a necessary thing, death, might result in the most important thing, life or eternal life. We're going to come back and study in concert with this Galatians chapter 3. We don't have time to go there now. We'll pull it in next week. And Paul actually says this in much more graphic terms. He says the law was just a tutor, just an instructor. It just told you the, the, the questions that you got wrong. So that you would reach for and lean on the grace of God which forgives what you did wrong and provides that which is right. So what value does the law have? I want to take a moment and, and do something with you that we did a few years ago when we were looking at uh, Deuteronomy. It's something that had a, a, a major impact on my thinking about the law and the grace of the law. How does the psalmist say in Psalm 119 over and over and over, Don't, how I love your law, oh God, I love your law. Who says, thank you God, how I love that you tell me what to do and you tell me what not to do. Don't you wish your kids would just come in, Mother, Father, thank you for telling me what to do and what not to do. Some of you will remember this. It's a prayer uh, recorded by J.B. Pritchard. It records a prayer that was found in a a, a stone, a prayer journal book uh, of a contemporary of Moses. The prayer is addressed, as you'll see, to no particular God, but to all gods in general. Even those who may not be known. And the purpose of the prayer is to claim relief from suffering. Uh, the, the writer understands the result of some of his infractions have caused him to be in trouble. How can the psalmist say, I love your law, O God? How can the psalmist say, I love when you tell me what to do and what not to do? This is incredibly painful and redundant. But just follow along as I read this ancient Near Eastern unbeliever praying to an unknown God. Listen to this. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. He's covering all the bases he can. May the goddess whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the heart of my God be quieted toward me. May the heart of my goddess be quieted toward me. May my God and goddess be quieted toward me. May the God who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. May the goddess who has become angry with me be quieted toward me. In ignorance, in ignorance I have eaten That which my God forbids. In ignorance I have set foot on that prohibited by my goddess. 
Oh, Lord, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. Oh, my God, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. Oh, my goddess, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. Oh, God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many. Great are my sins. The transgression which I have committed, indeed, I do not know. The sin which I have done, indeed, I do not know. The God, the forbidden thing which I have eaten, I don't know. The prohibited place on which I have set forth, indeed, I do not know. The Lord, in the anger of his heart, looked at me. The God, in the rage of his heart, confronted me. When the goddess was angry with me, she made me become ill. The God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me. The goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering upon me. Although I am constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I'm troubled. I'm overwhelmed. I cannot see. Oh, my God, merciful one, I address to thee in, the pra- in prayer, ever inclined to me. I kiss the feet of my goddess. I crawl before thee. How long, O goddess, whom I know or do not know, ere thy hostile heart will be quieted. Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists. What does he know? Whether he's committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. Oh, my Lord, do not cast thy servant down. He's plunged into the waters of a swamp. Take him by the hand. The sin which I have done, turn into goodness. The transgression which I have committed, let the wind carry away. My many misdeeds strip off like a garment. Oh, my God, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Oh, my goddess, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Oh, God, whom I know or do not know, my sins are seven times seven. Remove my transgression. Oh, goddess, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Remove my transgressions and I will sing thy praise. May thy heart, like the heart of a real mother, be quieted toward me. Like a real mother and a real father, may it be quieted toward me. God did not leave his people in this category. Here's who I am. Here's what I expect. Here's how to obey. Here's when you don't obey. Here's the grace that flows from believing in who I am. And in the gospel, here is my son who has become your righteousness, taken away your sin, proved it by rising from the dead. The next time you complain in your heart, that you have so much of God's word. Remember this prayer. Isn't it good to know? Isn't it good to not be saying, the one I know or do not know what I've done, I don't know what I've done. Maybe I did something I wasn't supposed to. I didn't do something I was supposed to. I'm just lost. The law is good because it shows us our sin and knowing our sin shows us our need for a great savior. See Paul's flow, his argument? He didn't know how much of a coveter he was until he read, do do not covet. And that shined a flashlight on his heart. 
Why do we read the Bible? Why do we read God's word? Because it's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Shows us our hearts. You guys have read it on bulletins. You've seen it on uh, church placards. It is so true. This book will keep you from sin. Or sin will what? Keep you from this book. Praise God for the law. And praise God that as saved believers in Christ, we can look at the law, the commandments, and apply them to be more holy, not to be actually saved. I know there's a lot of questions unanswered by that. And we have half of chapter 7 to finish. Galatians will inform us as well. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we have just scratched the surface of the genius mind of the Holy Spirit communicated through the pen of Paul that that tells us why we have an Old Testament, that tells us why you gave the law, that tells us the inadequacies of the law, the inability of the law, and also tells us the value of the law. We affirm, we thank you for the law. Oh, how we love your law, oh God. It tells us who you are and what you expect. And in your word, you've also told us of the great story of your son who lived a life we could never live in obedience to your law and forgave our sinful lives by faith in who he is and what he's done. These are deep waters theologically. Lord, please instruct us. Help us to navigate this, this intricate chapter with insight from your spirit. Illumine our minds and now apply these things to our heart. Thank you for having Paul write this letter to this group of believers in Rome. Create discussions now, Lord, that will honor and glorify you and Prove us to be more sanctified by obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.